This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is David Kleinberg, the designer and founder of the esteemed firm that bears his name. While still in college, David took a summer job with society designers of the day Robert Denning and Vincent Fourcade. The experience, while complicated in David's words, convinced him that design and decoration was a path he wanted to pursue. Later, he would hone his craft during a 16-year tenure at the iconic design firm Parrish Hadley, working alongside designers such as Bunny Williams, Brian McCarthy, and David Easton, before ultimately going out on his own in 1997. I spoke with David about his experiences training under some of the most lauded figures in design, what mattered most when he decided to go it alone, and how he has adjusted business operations to match evolving client behavior. The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. They've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, they strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Visit houseofroll.com to explore. Hello listeners, Dennis Scully here. I'm excited to announce that my favorite event of the year is back. Business of Home's Future of Home Conference is taking place in person this fall, September 13th and 14th. It will be two days of lively discussions with leaders of the industry about how businesses can turn high demand into meaningful growth, how the pandemic has shifted consumer behavior and psychology, and how we can continue to inspire our clients and inspire ourselves. I'll be hosting, and I promise it's going to be great fun. Get your tickets now at futureofhome.com. And of course, a huge shout out to our sponsors, the Crate and Barrel CB2 Trade Program, High Point Market Authority, Benjamin Moore, Hunter Douglas, Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams, Afterpay, Pinterest, Universal Furniture, Krypton, and EQ3. I can't wait to see you there. And now, on with the show. I want to hear about growing up in Great Neck, Long Island, and, and the childhood years, and, and what, was, what was that like? <laughs> I don't know, because I have no memory of my childhood. My brother, <laughs> my brother remembers absolutely every moment of every day, and I sometimes I'll say, when did that happen? <laughs> What? You know, there were just three of us. Um, we, you know, I have an older brother and a much younger sister. And Great Neck was kind of leave it to beaver time, you know? I mean, I went to schools in Great Neck straight through high school, literally all close enough to get there on a bicycle. Oh. I grew up in a time when, you know, parents thought nothing about opening the front door and sending their kids out on a bicycle. You know, I was probably eight years old and I biked off to school. You know, nobody thought, should we worry that he might not come back? He's not wearing a helmet. Right. He, he's no one wore a helmet. Right. Nobody, he's out the door on his own. You know, nobody told you not to talk to strangers. You just, you know, you just went off, you know. Great Neck was a small town. Right. And so it was very homogenous. Everybody's parents had moved out from Brooklyn or, you know, Queens or somewhere out to the suburbs. And so everyone was sort of doing the same thing. Yes, that was the time of sort of that big urban exodus, yeah, right? Everyone yeah. thought, no, the, I'm the a suburbs full-on was... baby boomer and, <laughs> and lived that life. And what was your dad doing? And, and, and was there a family business? Or no, was my there, father, was there... you know, I mean, God bless him. I mean, my father and I, you know, were never super close, but had a perfectly fine relationship. You know, he he worked. He was in women's undergarments, you know, mm. and, and then he was a salesman and then he did that. And then years later, um, he started a business in home, home securities. Okay. You know, he went to work, he worked hard. He, 
I, we grew up in a nice suburban town. I, you know, it was all, I was very lucky. Did he share with you ideas of, of, of what he, what he wanted you to do or become? No. I mean, no. So that was never really a conversation. No, never really. I mean, you know, there was the quintessential, all children should become doctors or lawyers. <laughs> that was just a universal belief that everyone held. Right. So th the idea of becoming a decorator was just sort of not really in the cards. And to be perfectly frank, when I was kind of maybe in my high school years, I took myself to see the Joffrey Ballet because what really the desire I harbored secretly, secret, oh, secret, secret here desire. We go. Now we're getting to it. Was to be a dancer. To be a ballet dancer. Mm -hmm. Either a ballet dancer or a modern dancer. Well, and, and so did you, did you pursue it? Did you share with anyone? Not until college. And then okay. there was a, a modern dance kind of <laughs> department, if you will. Right. You know, and so I, I signed up. But I was too old by then to really pursue it. And I say this all the time. Had I become a dancer, I'd, I'd still would have ended up being a decorator. And I'd probably be in exactly the same place I'm at <laughs> now. So, but I would have had a different earlier experience, which would have been maybe nice or maybe heartbreaking. I don't know. I probably would have been a really lousy dancer. Well, and how did becoming a decorator and become the path? I, I, I sort of remember there was like a, a, a childhood friend, right, whose, whose father was in that in true suburban, you know, my backyard backed up to my neighbor's backyard. Right. And my across the fence neighbor, Karen, her father was a builder of houses. He, he built spec houses. Hmm. And so he had all these builder magazines. And so I would pour through those and I would, you know, trace the, you know, the forms of them and I would look through them and, and then he would invite me, he would say, well, you know, we're building this house on, you know, Blue Sea Lane or we're living, building this house on whatever. And, you know, if you want to come by, so he would let me bike by and I could walk through the construction sites. So it was an immediate attraction for you. Yeah. And it wasn't an attraction of anyone in my family, particularly. They were not interested in it. Um, mm. I mean, when my parents moved into the house in Long Island, my mother hired a quote unquote decorator, but I think she was a decorator who worked in a furniture store or something like that. But she cared enough to, you know, have somebody assist and help her and pick out furniture. And, you know, we had, and whoever this woman was who helped my mother originally had kind of remarkably prescient taste. Um, it was all these, you know, it was Herman Miller and Noel furniture. Oh, really? so it was all oh. Saarinen tables and Eames chairs. And yeah. So it was quite chic. Years at, later. At, at yeah. The day, so yes. here's a, a silly story. <laughs> years, years and years later, my parents sell the house and they move into a, a small apartment in Great Neck. And then of course, move down to Boca Raton, which was, you know, sort of the cultural right of having <laughs> the, the, lived the in Long Island. Yeah, absolutely. For all those years. <laughs> And so my mother, unbeknownst to me, decided she was going to sell some of the things that she didn't have room for anymore. You know, we, I helped her obviously move and, you know, we recovered some stuff and I didn't really, we hadn't gotten around to talk about, you know, what do you do with that pair of chairs and that card table, you know, Noguchi card table for Noel and, you know, things <laughs> right. that were somehow my mother was finding somebody who would buy these things and who calls me up after he'd gone to see my mother, but Paul Donzella, who's a good dealer of, you know, kind of contemporary and mid-century things. And he calls me up and he said, I had the nicest afternoon with your mother in her garage. And I said, <laughs> I don't even know how, where, what to ask you next. Like, how did that happen? And he said, your mother put an ad in the local paper about selling things and she listed what there was. And so I went to see her. He said, until I... I had no idea who she was. And then we got to talking and it turned out she's your mother. I said, <laughs> so did you rip her off? <laughs> did you give her a good price? I right. mean, <laughs> he said, I was terrified. <laughs> Here he thought he was going to make a killing. And then, right. right. And then your name got brought up and he thought, oh, all right. So, so he said, so, you know, here's this woman, you know, in Great Neck who says, oh, my son's a decorator. And he sort of rolled, he said, I rolled my eyes and said, yeah, whatever. You know, and she said, oh, you, do you know David Kleinberg? <laughs> and then he drops his drink, right? And says, oops, oh, David Kleinberg. Oh, yes, my yeah. goodness, your son. Yes, I do know your son. I mean, 
Talk about small world. Did I say 700 for that table? I'm really going to give you 7,000. Of course, I meant 7,000. How funny. So in a way, I mean, you, you did sort of grow up, it sounds like, with with some really iconic pieces. And, yeah, right? And, and, yeah. yeah. And so there there was a little bit of that in your life. So when you when you went off to university, what was the thinking for you? I mean, other than dreaming of being a dancer, what what what, <laughs> right. what, uh, what other dreams did you have? Well, the other dream was architecture, obviously. I mean, you know, and that was something sort of professionally adjacent to lawyer doctor, right? And and I was interested, obviously, in architecture, and I had always been, you know, I mean, the architecture of houses was really interesting. And so I thought that would be a, a career path. But I was always interested in interior architecture. I mean, I love the architecture of houses and the whole box of it, the whole creation of it. And one of the people I talked to was the parents of a, a friend of mine, and they were working with decorators. And uh, her mother said, well, would you like to talk to the decorators I'm working with? Maybe they could explain to you what they do and what that world is. You know, you see, you're, you know, you're always asking questions. You're always interested. You're always... Right. Okay. You know, that was nice. And, and I don't know that you should be dating my daughter, but... <laughs> In light of some of the interests you seem to yeah. have, I'm not sure you're Maybe really we should the right. Rethink this. <laughs> you're a charming young man, but <laughs> so an introduction was was made. Yeah. So she said, "Why don't you come over? Bob is coming over, and you know you can meet Bob and Vincent." And I thought, "Okay, fine." And it turned out to be Robert Denning and Vincent Forcott, who were in <laughs> those days rather, yes. you know, formidable decorators. Absolutely. So we met, and he, they couldn't have been nicer. I think they were completely surprised that there was this kid in the their <laughs> client's living room. And she said, "No, I'd like you to meet David. He's interested, or he thinks he would be." And blah, you know, and they they were very nice. And they said, "Well, why don't you come into the city and come to the office and and talk to us?" They ran an, a small office, and they said, "The the woman who runs our office, you know, it was really a two person office, likes to take you know." Mondays and Fridays off in the summer, and we, we could use extra help. We could use the help in the office if you want to work in our office for the summer. So I said, yes. What a fantastic opportunity. Sure. Yeah, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, uh, <laughs> but, but it was great. I mean, they were complicated people, but they worked with unbelievably interesting clients, and they did you know, this very elaborate, very, you know, kind of imaginative, full-blown sort of what was known in those days as, you know, this Le Stil Rothschild, you know, this <laughs> Rothschild style decorating. Right. But they did it with such style. And um, and it was great, you know, and they the, their office was, a, uh, you know, on the sort of another floor of the townhouse they lived in. And they had this lovely couple who worked for them and the woman whose name I still remember, Janine, was a great cook, and she used to come up and bring me an extra, you know, chocolate mousse in the afternoon <laughs> or something. You know, um, no, it was a, it was remarkable. And you, you mentioned that they were, they were sort of complicated. Was it so? Were there some, some challenges, sort of navigating? Well, they were complicated because you know Vincent was French and incredibly Vincent Foucault. He came from a rather serious French family. His brother Xavier was a very important dealer of 20th century art in New York. Mm -hmm. He was you know French and formal and demanding. And Bob Denning was. Basically, you had to like empty his pockets at the end of the day and try to figure out where he had been and what he had done. And did he buy a piece of furniture? And then who was it for? And, you know, so he was like Dennis the Menace. So they were these two very funny guys. And they were partners in life and partners in business. So there were all sorts of dynamics going on. And did that experience make you want to jump into this, into this industry? Did you just find it wildly alluring and, and, and fascinating? I mean, I did find it alluring because, you know, we were working for, you know, they had fascinating clients, you know, from the first Mrs. De Laurenta to Lillian Phipps, you know, to Kenny J. Lane. And so I was dealing with all these people, but also, yeah, it made me want to jump into it because it was about all about seeing what wasn't there yet. And I thought that was pretty cool. 
And so that was sort of your your summer job, and then sort of what what happened once you once you sort of got out of school and, and- uh, I got out of school and I stayed working for them. Mm. But um, when I went to work for them on a permanent basis, some of the personality issues that I found complicated but tolerable for summer months became <laughs> became even more complicated and less tolerable. difficult. <laughs> you know, he yeah. would have been outed for abusive behavior. Mm. May he rest in peace. But uh, and then I went to so I I started to look for a more permanent position. Okay. And I went to work for a woman named Mara Palmer, mm. who was uh, Bulgarian by birth, stylish, attractive, fun, spoke eight languages at a minimum, drank champagne, but liked to take the bubbles out of it with a swizzle stick she carried in her <laughs> pocketbook. I mean, she was cool as hell. I loved her. And I worked with her for five years, small office. And it was Mara, myself, and a secretary. And, you know, I put the key in the office door in the morning and vacuumed the floor and shut the door at night and put things away. And it was great experience. And what was her clientele like at the time? You know, they were not quite as socially prominent as Denning and mm. Forcods. The budgets were probably a little smaller. She had a more, I think because of her Somehow, with the world she traveled in, there were a lot of international people. So we had a lot of people doing apartments in New York for people who came from South America, people who came from Europe. You know, so there was a a, lot, a bit of that. So a good a good training ground. You got you got sort of a lot of a really good training ground, and um, and she was she was a sweetheart. Uh, and we would travel together. Uh, the first shopping trips I went on, we went on together. You know, it was just great. And I stayed for five years, but I obviously knew I needed to go to a bigger firm. And I, you know, and I had my eyes on where I wanted to go, which was Parrish Hadley. And so I kind of was waiting around till there, till I could, <laughs> you know, force myself in the door. And um, I, I went there. Ultimately, you know, there was a job there and they offered it to me, which was pretty amazing. And when I told Mara I was going to be leaving her, she said, if you're not going to work for Albert Hadley, I will never talk to you again. And I said, no, I'm going to work for Albert Hadley. That's and just she who said, I'm going to work for. She said, that's fine. She said, that's exactly where you should be. And we stayed friends for the rest of her life. Oh. And I interviewed every one of her assistants after I left. <laughs> Is that right? You would be the screener? I would be the screener. I was basically her headhunter. She would call and she would say, you know, three years would go by and she would say, okay, I need a, you know, I need a new person. They've gone off to something else. And I would find somebody for her. What a wonderful relationship to have, to have maintained. I mean, yeah, it was pretty great. The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. They've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, they strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. This is the story craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. Visit houseofroll.com to explore. I remember you were you were introduced to to Albert Hadley sort of quite some time before you went to work for him, if I recall. Yes, and and he yeah. was sort of always on your your radar as as the one you really wanted to work through for. somebody I knew from Great Neck actually, who was a great collector, and she actually had a shop for a while. Uh, her name was Muriel Karasik, and Muriel Karasik had a great collection of Art Deco furniture. So much so that she had to start selling it because she had, you know, so she opened a little shop on Madison Avenue for fun. And she introduced me to Freddie Victoria, who had a great antique uh, shop on the way yeah. on the East 50s. And it was through Freddie I met Albert originally. And then there was somebody, Gary Hager, who worked at Parrish Hadley who was my contemporary, and he and I became friends because we would bang into each other in the business all the time, you know, picking up samples in the D&D &D building, you know, so we became friends. And then it turned out we ended up living a block away from each other. Hmm. So we just became friends. And so that was another way I kept sort of beads on what was happening at Parish Hadley. <laughs> 
Well, and, and, and for listeners who might not be familiar, I mean, d- describe a little bit of, of sort of what the perception of Parrish Hadley in its day was and, and why you would so want to work there. Well, the business in those days, it was a smaller industry. Mm. You know, there were a lot of small single practitioner firms. But in those days, probably Macmillan and Parrish Hadley were the ones that had nearly what you would think of as an international reputation. And even in those days, Sister Parrish and Albert Hadley were these icons of American design. And I thought, well, that's where I should be. Yes, of course, with my talent. I didn't really think I belonged there, but I thought, well, you know, if this is my chosen field, then I want to be in the most professional environment I could be in. So I thought that's what was it. And of course, I knew the work of the firm and I just thought, well, that's the most beautiful work and it's the most elevated. And um, that's where I wanted to be. And I didn't know anyone at Macmillan. But Albert's work, you know, because, you know, Billy Baldwin early on was a real icon. I mean, I just, Mm. the work totally resonated with me that, you know, how he could combine traditional furniture and new furniture. I mean, you even behind me is a bookcase that's sort of very much inspired by Billy Baldwin (laughs) bookcases, you know, and so Albert's work was just something that I I looked at and I thought, that's who I want to learn from you know, because I didn't go to quote unquote design school. I say to people all the time, no, I didn't go to design school, but I listened to Albert Hadley and <laughs> Sister Parrish for 16 years or a little less in the case of Mrs. Parrish because she passed away. But, you know, so I had a pretty good training ground, but that's sort of where I wanted to be because it was, you know, if you were going to shoot for the stars, they were the stars. Well, and you always sort of joke that you were afraid they were going to figure out you didn't really belong there, but but you but you did belong there, right? I mean, I always say the same thing. I have a career because I show up. <laughs> you know? I mean, when I went to my interview there, I went for an interview with um, the man who was the office manager, and I didn't really have a portfolio. I had some images of some things, but I didn't have a proper portfolio. You know, and no, we didn't have CAD in those days. We didn't have computer drawings. We didn't have computer renderings. So I had some furniture plans. I had some things. You know, I didn't have very much to show him. Albert and I, you know, knew each other and Albert was, you know, willing to just go on faith that I wouldn't be a complete disaster. And I guess he figured <laughs> if I was a complete disaster, he'd, they'd fire me. And then I had to meet Mrs. Parrish. So I thought, okay, I've, you know, gotten through this, but I figured now I'm going to be found out. Right. <laughs> okay. So I went to the office. I went, was shown into the conference room and the conference room was decorated like a sitting room. So, you know, sofa, chairs, tables. And at one end was a kind of round table with, you know, upholstered chairs around it. And I sat at the table thinking, what do I show her? What do I talk about? Uh." And Mrs. Parrish came in in her gray sweater set and skirt, you know, her (laughs) her uniform, followed by her two Pekingese dogs. (laughs) And I stood up and I said, hello. And one of the Pekingese dogs promptly squatted and had a pee on the rug. Oh, no. Which I didn't know, but apparently it was a very common occurrence was, in the office. I mean, I, every day. I got to know quite well over time. Right. It didn't seem to phase her. Anyway, I looked at her and I said, oh, if you just tell me where the paper towels are, I'll be right back. Yeah, I grew up with dogs and, uh, you know, I had a dog. Right. And, well, you know, dogs are dogs, whatever. So right. she looked at me and she said, oh, the door to the left is the kitchenette. So I, you know grabbed some paper towels, blotted it and, you know, disposed of them and sat down. And I think that I, to this day, I think that's the reason I was hired. Well, and, and that's how you won her over. Yeah. I right. Think, right. Or I was practical. Well, it's, it's interesting, David, because so many of your former colleagues talked about how you had a relationship with Mrs. Parrish that, that many were unable to, to have. I mean, she, she wasn't, as, as you've described yourself, she wasn't always the easiest person, right, to, to, to get on with. And you managed to sort of figure that out. Yeah, I always said, you know, I always assumed I would go to work and be, you know, Albert's assistant on projects. And, you know, and I would see Mrs. Parrish, you know, coming through the office. And in fact, that isn't what happened. I ended up going there. And the first, even before I was my first start date, I got a call from Mrs. Parrish's secretary and said, Mrs. Parrish would like you to meet her at her apartment, you know, at 830 to drive up to Connecticut. And I said, oh, Okay, but 
I don't work there yet. Wait, but do I have I'm, this job? I, right, but okay. I, no, I have been hired, but I didn't. I hadn't had a my start date hadn't happened. Right. Anyway, I thought, okay, fine. You know, what did I know? I wasn't going to say no. And I, <laughs> you know, was outside Mrs. Parrish's door at eight twenty-five, and I think, um, you know, hooray for me! I'm here on early. And of course, Mrs. Parrish was already sitting in the car, and I thought, oh, I, I so I see my future. Ah. <laughs> You know, and the driver was in the car and we drove up to some clients and that we were just going to start a new project for in Greenwich. And so she wanted to go and it was on her schedule and she thought, no, I'm, and this was going to be something I would assist on. And so I ended up working on many, many projects with her for 10 years. And I always thought, you know, we came from such different backgrounds, but somehow we managed to have a rapport and you know she was very plain speaking but she had a great sense of humor that not everyone got to see but if you got to see it she was wickedly funny <laughs> and she was wickedly loyal she could be a great friend because she was very loyal to her family and she had a great sense of loyalty and that ran deep and i certainly learned a lot from her that i wouldn't have been exposed to you know, her whole instinctual way of decorating. Tell me about her instinctual way of decorating, because many people have have remarked about this sort of sensibility that she just seemed to have. You know, she grew up in a very comfortable way. She was exposed to a lot of things, and she just had an inherent sense of what would be comfortable. She wasn't a great cook. Food was not her big thing, but she knew... She knew what made people comfortable in a room, where you would want to sit, where's the light coming in. She had a great eye for color and pattern. You know, she could sort through a stack of chintzes in, you know, like like a bank accounting bill. You know, she was super fast. And she would just go by her gut. She could scale in proportion of things. She, going shopping for furniture with her was wonderful because... While she had things she was drawn to, she loved painted furniture, she loved country furniture, she loved crafts. If there was a grand piece of furniture that was required, she would, you know, just make a beeline for what was undoubtedly the best thing in the in a gallery. Whereas, you know, and I, I would sit and I would do a furniture plan and I would do a layout and we would discuss it, you know, but when it came time to installing the houses, I would be there with my checklist and my furniture plan and I would say, oh, that's, you know, for the living room, it's item C on the plan. And then I would see the movers going somewhere else and they were saying, well, <laughs> Mrs. Parrish told me to go here with it. And I was like, where? You would see the, all the furniture you would arrange going, you know, sometimes someplace else. But she just had that way. Whereas with Albert, you would sit and talk about a project and he would sketch and you'd be working it out. And it would be fully realized on plan and elevation. That was your roadmap. Whereas with mm. Mrs. Parrish, it was, it was more. She would say, "Oh, those are beautiful chairs. Let's." And she would meander through the garden, you know, as she found things. Was there sort of a team sister and team Albert, or or sort of how would would you be pulled back and forth, or how did it flow there? A little bit. Um, I I sort of uh, worked with them both. There were some people who only worked with Albert, and then like when somebody like Libby Cameron came along, Libby and Mrs. Parrish were cut from one mold, you know. So Libby really worked with Mrs. Parrish almost exclusively. She certainly worked with Albert, but. You know, she and Mrs. Parrish were so like-minded. But by then, I was already, I'd been at Parrish Hadley for so long, I was already doing my own projects that I would just sort of sit down with Albert and have him critique and look at. Um, so it wasn't completely, but I, I'd say more than most, I, mm -hmm. I, I sort of straddled the line between the two of them, which was unbelievably lucky you know, to, to have both, you know, real insight into both of their methods. Well, and when you would bring a project to Albert to critique, what was, what was that process like? Always instructive. I mean, you know, Albert, you know, as everyone said, Albert was the dean of American decorating because he was so instructive. He would share why he re was responding. 
he would say, mm, you know, I think maybe we need a stripe here. Or let's look at how you're distributing the where. Okay, where is that pattern going in the room? Well, what's that going to look like on the curtain? And, you know, well, it's a big pattern. So how are you using it? He, you know, he would really talk you through things. And then sometimes he would say, you know, I think you need some variation in a texture or, you know, Albert was always saying, you can't just look at the fabrics. Is it a mahogany table or is it a painted table? Is it covered in parchment? Is it gilded brass or polished bronze? You know, so he was always bringing that into the mix. So you could really fully realize it. Whereas if you went, showed Mrs. Parrish a scheme, she would pick up a fabric and kind of rub it between her fingers and she might discard it but you didn't know if she didn't like it because she didn't like the color she didn't like the texture she didn't like you didn't know right so there was a little less guidance there was a little less right <laughs> sometimes she would look at a scheme and say that one and walk out the room so you <laughs> then you really didn't know well why did she like it so how do i how do i do that next time <laughs> okay so but albert was always very very generous over the years did you did you come to understand what were the priorities at, oh, at, sure. at Par or did the firm sort of put together sort of was there a sort of a parish Hadley way of doing things and how you worked or or was it really sort of project by project? You and, know, there, there was a I mean, there certainly were guidelines and there certainly mm. was a, a, a method. So there were certainly means and methods. But, you know, it, it, it changed over time uh, depending on who the decorators were, depending on who the coordinators were assisting, you know, doing the paperwork. You know, I tend to be pretty organized. Other decorators were less organized, but I always thought more creative. <laughs> but, you know, my office was next to Bunny Williams' office. So, you know, imagine trying to keep up. <laughs> well, indeed. I mean, there was Bunny Williams sort of becoming Bunny Williams in Bunny front of Williams your eyes, Bunny Williams just being right? endlessly brilliant, you yeah. know, and you would kind of go, okay. Boy. Yeah. And, you know, doing, you know, nine big houses and I was struggling with a, you know, two <laughs> apartments or whatever. And again, being super generous and super fun to work with. But, you know, she was Bunny. You know, Bunny to this day can do, is more efficient than and more creative than any three decorators I know combined. <laughs> you know, I ran into Bunny last night. She was at a restaurant. I, I walked in and of course they wanted to, you know, they were seating me and my, my the person I was meeting. I said, I'm sorry, I just have to go say hello first. <laughs> I, I adore Bunny. Oh, how fun that you got yeah. to see her. And I reached out to her telling her that I was talking to you. And, and she says she misses working with you to this day. Yeah, no, I adore Bunny. Um, you know, she's she's great. Well, it, it, it sounds like you had an incredible chemistry. And, and, and it it just sounds as if that time w w was such an incredible time in, in all of your lives. I mean, all, all, the, the yeah. incredible, right? The incredible talent that was working on that team, whether it was David Easton or yourself or Bunny or, I mean, the or Brian McCarthy. Brian or, McCarthy. Yeah. And, exactly. Yeah. It was a gift. So 16 years and then. And then it was time to to finally leave. Sixteen years, and it that. finally occurred to me maybe I maybe I <laughs> maybe should leave. Maybe I home. need to go out on my own. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. All right. <laughs> so what what finally sort of precipitated you sort of thinking about leaving? And A couple of things. You know, the realistic issues. You know, Albert was getting older, and mm. one you know a sensible thing would be to think about his future, and and therefore how that would affect my future. Bunny had left, Brian had left, Mrs. Parrish had passed away. A, a certain amount of the personality of the office had changed, mm. not in a bad way, just in a different way. I hadn't really considered, I mean, I hadn't really thought about opening my own office because I just thought I could never do any better than working for Parrish Hadley. I was so, I was so proud of where I was and I was so proud of the work I had done there for all those years. And because I was still waiting for everyone to figure out that I was just a big fake. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't willing to go out on my own. But then I figured I, it was about time. But I was old. I was 41. I mean, so I was not, you know, Mr. Experienced. You were, you were yes. experienced. Thank you, Dennis. And yes, yes. And you, yeah. and, you, and you finally felt ready, right? And it just became very clear very quickly that it was the right thing to do. And, of course, the first person I discussed it with was Albert because <laughs> there, there was no one whose opinion mattered more to me. You were very, very close, and, and I know that that was probably 
the most difficult sort of part of the conversation, right? Is how it was difficult, except there was so much precedent from other people who had left, and how generous and how you know supportive Albert had been. So I wasn't concerned that you know it would be an unpleasant conversation at all. Mm. I knew Albert would be Albert and would you know do exactly what he did, which is support me and offer to do whatever he could to be helpful and useful. I asked him to come with me and join me. <laughs> he wasn't willing to go that far. So it was a pretty easy thing. But, you know, then we sat down and I said, look, obviously I want the timing of my departure to be the least disruptive to the office. And let's see how, what that could look like. So we're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about the upcoming future of home conference. This year, we're back in person with the leaders and innovators who shape the home industry all in one place together. Here's a clip from the 2019 conference, an interview I did with Chad Stark, the CEO of Stark Carpet. So our industry is a product of our success. We've done something for so long so well that it's hard to change because it worked for so long. And so as it relates to transparency, I mean, oftentimes people just go to pricing transparency and say, oh, right. everyone should know the price for everything. But that's not the only thing that transparency is included within transparency. So what your business practices are, what your different policies are, and how you handle different situations, being communicative and transparent about that is, I think, a given in any business today. This year, the event is September 13th and 14th in New York City. To get your ticket, visit futureofhome.com. I'll be hosting, and I can't wait to see you. Now, let's get back to the show. So you mentioned that you, by this time you were working on lots of your own projects. Was it the sort of thing where there was an assumption that you would take the the Smiths with you when you left, or was it you would just go out on your own? Pretty much. No, I think the assumption okay. was. I mean, these were clients. You know, they were at that point they were clients who had been introduced to me at the firm. Mm -hmm. You know, by other clients I had worked with. The assumption was that, and that is exactly what happened. And I and I asked the decorating assistant who was working with me at Parish Hadley to come with me and the woman who was the coordinator sort of administrative person and so they both did come with me and join me and I said I'm you know we this may all crash and burn but <laughs> but you know if I'm not here I'm not sure you have a job at Parish Hadley anyway so I'm not sure this is a big risk <laughs> so they did come so Bunny was terribly worried about who was going to do the books when she went out on her own. What were you worried about when I you were going out on your own? Completely, because I talked to Bunny, I talked to Brian, <laughs> I talked to people, and they, everyone, almost to a person, said, "Get a really good accountant." Mm. And they were they were all right, and I did get a good accountant who happened to be Vincent Wolf's accountant because Vincent was the one who suggested him, ah, and he was a okay. great accountant until he retired. I mean, so he was a great accountant of mine for. 20 years. I mean, and, and remarkably, when I went to see him, I said, I don't have a business. I'm just starting a business. I'm sure I can't even pay your fees, but would you take on a new client? And he did. At the time, what was sort of the, the fee structure of the day? I mean, there, there was this feeling that maybe things were a little loose. It just seems as if and you can you can tell me if this was this was always a, a push pull, but it seems as if the fee structure or the way designers are charging today seems more complicated. Or when one gets to a certain level or, or caliber, that it it seems easier to say that you are hiring me for this, all of these other things. But yeah, but at the same time, you know, and and clients, you know, make a good argument, which is. If your fee is based on cost of goods purchased, then mm. how am I to believe that you are not incentivized to just sell me the most expensive thing? Right. You know, that's the easy argument that everyone's heard for years. And I say, well, here, look, I'm showing you, you know, three options. And one is, you know, X number of dollars and one is X number of dollars times two. And one is here are three things. I'm not just sending, you know, and I'm not saying that's the option, but that's the, the, the concept. If it's not based on time and you're still making selections, shouldn't the fee be the fee regardless of what it costs me to purchase the item? There is strength to that argument. We have worked on flat fees on projects and I always feel I end up somehow 
shortchanging myself. Most recently, I, I'm working on a project out of town down in Palm Beach for clients. I think I've done four or five projects for. And of course, you know, in his kidding but not kidding way, the client comes to one of our recent meetings and says, do you realize we've been paying you fees for the last 17 years? <laughs> <laughs> and my attitude was, do you realize you've been living in houses and sleeping in beds that I've designed for the last 17 years? All of which I've made possible right. for you. <laughs> so you should be thankful. But he said, I know we've had our contract. I don't want to renegotiate, but would you consider just doing a flat fee he said, you know what this is mm. going to do, cost. We've agreed to a budget. Mm. He said, come up with a flat fee. We know how long this is going to take. I would much rather send you a check every month. Let's just divide it into X number of months for how long this project is going to take. He said, because, you know, he said, sometimes when you see a proposal for something and it says this table costs X, then there's the fee on top of it. He says, it's just sort of rubbing salt in the wound. Mm. <laughs> And I said, I understand that. Okay. And and in the end, you, you sort of came to, to an agreement I, on I, a fee? I and... thought, oh, God, when I tell him what the fee is in one lump sum, he's going <laughs> to fire me. He's, he's going to say, are you insane? But he said, they, you know, he said, obviously, I, that's what I assumed. He said, fine. And he's much happier. Interesting. Because he's not seeing it broken out that way. And so it feels better somehow yeah. to him. He says, I obviously have no issue paying your fees. And obviously, I think you're well worth your fees, or I wouldn't have been paying your fees for this many years. He says, but seeing it attached to each piece of furniture just sort of makes the decision. He says, you know, if I'm inclined to go with something and then I see that, I think, mm, really? But if I don't see it, then I'm just buying the things and that's fine. Exactly. And that does seem to be the, the challenge. And sometimes what seems to hold the industry back a bit is, is people do struggle with that. You're, you're going to buy the table and then you're going to mark it up 30% and you show that or whatever the percentage is. And it does sort of, as you say, kind of rub people the wrong yeah, way sometimes. And, and the industry hasn't really helped because mm. now everybody publishes a retail price, but the reduction off retail doesn't provide anyone with enough of an income you know right. it's so you know how does that work because you no client wants to pay above what would be a quote-unquote list price i would agree why should they that's ridiculous and that's where people then start to say okay well then i'm going to charge an hourly for how long it's taken me to identify this and you know then you get into all these things and i just think that's you know it's just making an already complicated scenario and mathematical equation more so. And I would love it if there were some industry standard that we could all come to and say, this is a good way to do it. But, you know, so when anyone can go on all these different sites all over and see a published price, it makes it very complicated for designers to find a way to explain their cost structure. No, it it seems challenging. And and I I was I was speaking recently with the CEO of First Dibs and after the interview came out several designers reached out to me and said, "Well, that's all very nice that he wants the he wants the markup to go away, but in many parts of the country, that's the main source of revenue for interior right. designers, right? And so what do you do there?" Look, I live in a bubble. I I I grew up in the New York area. I work in New York area. It's always been the sort of you know, ground zero of the the top tier of design, mm. you know, and I've been very fortunate. I've worked long and hard and I work at a certain level of the, of the residential industry that's, you know, rarefied to some extent. But there are, you know, designers all over this country who are working on a pure markup basis on this thing, who, you know, and that is what they depend on. And, and it's, you know, so that if that goes away, then what goes in its place? Do you feel that that clients have have changed a great deal? I mean, you mentioned earlier sort of the transparency and and maybe years ago a client wouldn't have come forward and said, "Listen, do me a favor, can you charge us differently?" But I mean, do do you feel that 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 wouldn't have happened back in the back in the day or I mean, there were always conversations about fees and charges. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, people who can afford to do this can afford to do it because they ask those questions, <laughs> you know, right? Um, you know, people That's say- That's how they oh, got all that money. Right. People say, oh, you must not have clients with budgets. And it's like, 
I, unless you're living on planet fantasy, <laughs> no, my clients have budgets. You know, right. of course they have budgets. Yeah. So the industry's changed, clients have changed, their knowledge has changed, the way they go about doing things, the way they share information. In the in the early days, you know, if you said to a client, "Well, do you have any idea of what you want?" Some people might, you know, have a magazine. You know, they had a shelter magazine. Now mm. you, you know, now they they ask you to they invite you to join their Pinterest page. <laughs> so of course it's different. You know, so some of that's great because there's so much more reference. There's so much more to look at. Some of it's terrible because, as I say all the time, you know, I have to talk my clients down that many more trees. It's like, mm, no, now I have to tell you why that's not an option, why that's not an option. You know, even though it's maybe good in the picture you're showing me or sometimes unbelievably appalling, you know, it could be one <laughs> or the other. <laughs> well, and and you've often talked about it's so challenging online to understand scale and proportion, oh. right? And to see these things. And of course, people get excited. And then, as you say, you have to sort of talk them down a little bit. And Yeah. And I'm sorry I wasn't on the your thing with the CEO of First Dibs. I mean, I talk to them all the time. And I obviously buy a lot through First Dibs. And I think First Dibs is a terrific you know, search engine and a certain and, and facilitator. And it's great that we are now exposed to dealers and cities and places all over the globe and all over the country that we wouldn't know. But at the same time, there are people who are maybe not so experienced as dealers or not so reputable as dealers or not so trustworthy as dealers. And I'm not doing the world carbon footprint any good by shipping all this stuff around on approval. But, mm. you know, that's kind of part of what you have to do in order to see it. And, you know, and even even if they give the dimensions online, there's nothing like seeing and touching and feeling. And, you know, it's great and not great. <laughs> and I've said this out loud for a long time, you know, but people buy clothes on. I buy clothes online and sometimes they're great. And sometimes I look like, you know, share in a road company or something you know and i just think what why did i why did i think this was going to work i want to see that speaking of that and recently and 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 i was i was having lunch with a with a fabric ceo uh the other day and and we were talking to, who, who has a relationship with, with you and he actually shared a funny story of sort of the first time meeting you and and sort of wanting to make such a good impression on uh, on on you uh because uh, because you you bring that uh that that out in people uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but he we we were talking a little bit about design centers and 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 the industry another challenge is perhaps that that design centers are are sort of keeping hidden all of these resources that that maybe uh if they were better known would give people more to compare to the restoration hardwares of the of the day and 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 sort of see a a wider array of mm. of, of choices than the world seems to be moving towards what do you think about that I think it's a fair point. I think it makes sense, but I don't even know how, you know, if design centers are that strict about who goes in. I mean, I think design centers are much more welcoming uh, to people, you know, just lay people who, you know, I mean, I don't know that they'll let them, they'll write an order to them necessarily, but I, I'm not even so sure about that. But I think, you know, if somebody wanted to go into the design center in LA, I think, I, I don't know that they'd be stopped or into 200 Lexington. I think they can wander around. Well, I guess the issue is more, yes, they can go there. But if you don't go there, you might not ever know that there's this incredible Clarence House fabric to be oh. found on the second floor. Or there's some of these sort of uh, – some of these remarkable choices that, that people have that, that, that you know of mm -hmm. for all of your years in the business, but that most people don't. And there's this, there's this growing consensus among many that, that sort of the, the RHs of the world are in some people's minds this sort of pinnacle of, of design. Right. And, Right. In, instead of it, as you know, this this sort of other world of of, of choices. 
But I also think it's it appeals to a different uh, two different people. I mean, the R the RHs of the world have already made your, the choices for people, and that's really I think what they want because they they're intimidated by too many options. They're intimidated by not knowing what to do with it. So, so yes, they might look at a beautiful Clarence House fabric if they were aware of it, but they wouldn't know what it would be appropriate on or how to do it or is this good will this be nice will this wear well whereas you know um and if they're on their own if you go into restoration hardware you can see or any of the catalogs that come through all you know land at our mail all the time at least you can see everything together and you think okay somebody's made my you know some decisions here so i can just say i want that one and that one and i'm okay with it um the problem with that of course is is the blanding down of everything and everything starts to look the same so it's hard to strike out on your own um and we see this all the time you know you can open the doors in lots of houses in the hamptons and it's the same it, everything looks the same that's the problem but i often say well how do real people do this mm you know, how do real people get their homes furnished? I mean, and, and there used to be furniture, you know, you used to have a furniture department in a department store. Well, those are all but gone too. Yes. And, and I don't, I don't know what is going to change that, but that, that certainly is a, a, a challenge for the, for the industry. I know I have to let you go. So my last question to you before you dash. So for the for the young designers listening to this show that dream of coming to work for a David Kleinberg, what what do you want people applying to to, to work at your firm to, to 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 know to have an understanding of to what kind of what are, what do you want them to bring to you? Curiosity, responsibility, integrity, fun, some knowledge. A sense of self, you know. People say to me, "Oh, you know, you, your opinions are so clear." And I said, "Well, I, th I think partly. A, I've been, you know, spouting my opinions for a long time, right or wrong. <laughs> I've refined them. But, you know, I think my clients want to. You know, they don't want a wishy-washy opinion. They want me to give them an opinion. They can choose to take it or not take it. But I think those are the things I, I, I want with a person. You know, and a, and a and a good work ethic. You know, willing to work long and hard." Well, David, thank you so much for making this time. I, I'm grateful to get to speak with you. Thank you again. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.